0: uh, Today we're continuing our studies in the life of David. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. That's our text. The topic we're going to find there is this. The prophet Nathan tells a story about a poor man's pet ewe lamb in order to expose David's sin of adultery and murder. The title of our message this morning, Embraceable You. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, You're so good to bring us to this place and to give us these next few minutes where as much as possible, Lord, we can focus our heart's attention on You and how You are revealed in Your Word, in this Word, these 14 verses. They involve a rebuke. They involve a confrontation. But they teach us so much more than that about Your heart of grace and Your love for us as Your children, Lord. and uh, the things that you want us to be doing and hearing and uh, the business that you have us to be about. And I pray, Lord, that nothing would get in the way of our heart hearing from you this morning and that as we leave this place, Lord, we would know that we've had an encounter with the risen living Savior with Jesus Christ by his spirit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus name and those who agree said. Amen. You're the man or its slang equivalent, you demand is a phrase we sometimes use as an expression of praise. As a matter of fact, my my grandson, uh, he's given to pointing now. That's what he's into. He just points at everything. When he points at me, I point back and I say, you the man! And uh, he hasn't gotten that yet. He just says, Papa, which that's fine. But anyway... uh, You've probably said this or certainly you will now because you want to be like me. But uh, anyway, uh, it's an expression that means you're the best or you're someone I admire or you're someone who can make things happen. Normally, it's something you want to hear said about you or to you. Not at all something David wanted to hear said about him. When his friend and God's servant Nathan came to him and said, you are the man It was to expose his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his ordering the murder of Uriah, her husband. As I thought about this confrontation, and that's what it is, I started to see that God had told Nathan, you're the man who's going to tell David, David, you're the man. God sent him to David to share his word with the hope of seeing David repent. God sends you and I to share his word with the hope that those who hear it will repent. We are his Nathans today in all of the various circumstances in which we find ourselves. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are the man God sends as his messenger. And number two, you are the man God says in his message. And so first of all, verses 1 through 6, let's talk about being messengers. Jesus spoke of our being sent when he gave what we call the Great Commission. It's Matthew twenty eight, sixteen through twenty. I'll read portions of it to you. It goes like this. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I've understood Jesus' command, go, to mean as you are going. It means as you are going through your daily, regular life. You don't need to go somewhere as a missionary in order to fulfill this commission. Now, it's a great verse for missions groups and for missionaries. There's nothing wrong with applying it that way. Uh, you know, uh, go into all the world, you know, and and, and if, if that for you in a particular time or for your lifetime means some foreign country or some other place, that's fantastic. But uh, sometimes I think we read it that way and it limits what Jesus was saying to every Christian, not just... You know, his 11 uh, disciples there, not just to ministers and missionaries, to every Christian. He's saying, look, as you are going through your life, you're going to encounter people. Uh, and when you do, you need to share with them. My love for them and lead them to me, make them disciples uh, and see that they get grounded in God's word. And so let's see what we can glean from Nathan, his particular messenger to David, about our uh, responsibility or, or privilege, really, to be his messengers wherever we are. Uh, verse one. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him. Now, let's stop there for a minute. We see very definitely that Nathan was sent By the Lord, there was a timing to it because it says then the Lord sent Nathan. And if you are looking at the chronology of these chapters, it's about 10 months to a year after the events of chapter 11, after the adultery uh, with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Then, in that timing, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so we get from that that Nathan was sensitive to God's leading. Why didn't he rebuke David earlier, assuming he knew about this? And actually, that's a good assumption. A lot of people knew about David's sin. He uh, certainly the his general Joab knew about it because he had ordered him to put Uriah in the front of the battle so that he would be killed. His servants who uh, knew about it, uh, one of them had even warned him. Saying, you know, this woman, Bathsheba, she's the wife of your servant, Uriah the Hittite. And so, uh, though it wasn't published in the daily news, there were a lot of people in the palace, especially, who knew about this. And it's not going too far to, know the, or to, to believe that Nathan knew about it. But he waited for about a year. He was sensitive to God's leading. On the other hand, once he was told to go, he didn't hesitate at all. He went immediately. Some of us rush into things thinking we are doing the Lord's work. We have everything figured out. We hear about something and we give it a cursory prayer and then we, man, we're gone. You know, this has to be done right now. Uh, uh, You know, nothing can happen until this happens. Others, we wait and we wait and we wait even after we've heard from the Lord. It's like, well, let's wait and see what happens. Maybe it'll take care of itself. And so we've got people at both ends of the spectrum. And God understands that. And we need to understand that. And we just need to hear from the Lord and be sensitive to the Lord's leading. There is often a timing, an important timing, in certain of uh, the things that the Lord gives us to do and in our own devotions we should be developing an understanding of how the lord speaks to us through his word and by his spirit so that we are in that timing think about being sent to david this is no easy task david was a backslidden believer living in sin that's hard enough if any of you've ever had to go to somebody backslidden living in sin to actually try to to win them back to christ but david had the additional power of a king. The power of life and death. He'd already wielded it evilly against Uriah to cover his sin. And so you're Nathan. Sure, you're a prophet. God says, I want you to go and expose David's sin publicly, as it were. And uh, David, you know, he had just had a guy murdered so that he could keep this sin private. So this is not an easy assignment. Uh, at all for Nathan. When God revealed to Nathan that he was sending him to David, I think it would have been a great comfort to know he was in the Lord's will as his messenger. Didn't guarantee the results, but it brought grace to his heart. And so there came that time, I'm not sure exactly how the Lord brought this to Nathan, but he brought him the message and he told him it was the time. And though the danger was still there and still real, he went with a greater confidence and boldness because he knew it wasn't just out of his own impulsive nature and he wasn't procrastinating, he said, I'm doing the will of the Lord. It's encouraging to realize we've been sent with God's word. There's no guarantee it will be received by either sinners or saints, but it does give us great comfort to know that we are God's messengers that he has sent us. Now, the genius of God's plan for each of us to go or as we're going through the world is that we develop relationships with folks. Here's what I mean. Look at Nathan and David. Nathan was a prophet. He was God's prophet to the nation of Israel in that kingdom. But he was really more than that to David. He was more than just a prophet punching a clock. He was a friend to David. He was close to him. We know that because one of David's sons is named Nathan. 2nd Samuel chapter 5. David takes Nathan into his confidence in chapter 7 about his desire to build the temple. It was a you know almost a secret desire, a personal desire, a, a dream that he had that he shared with Nathan. Nathan will name Bathsheba and David's second son in chapter 12, verse 25, and later he's going to remain loyal to the king and to Solomon when Adonijah seeks to usurp the throne. And so he was a prophet. He served the Lord in that capacity. That was his role but he was also David's friend. And you know, whether it's your neighbor, your co-worker, or your fellow student, or these people that you see at the, you know, at the market all the time, you have a relationship with them. And, and it's a little bit harder most of the time to ignore people that you have a relationship with. The guys here in the fellowship, they do a lot of street witnessing. And, and we're excited about that. It's a great thing. Just cold witnessing. You know, going up to somebody, handing them a tract asking them what do they know about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fantastic. But I remember before I was a Christian and people would do that to me at the University of California, Riverside, I thought they were all whack job, nut jobs, and I'd take their stuff and just toss it in the trash so it couldn't, you know, pollute anybody's mind uh, when what they really needed was existential philosophy. You know, that kind of a thing. And and, uh, you, you could ignore people that you don't know. It's an imposition. But... Years later, when I was struggling in my life and my good friend who I had worked with for some time at the title company, Lauren Faulkner, when he became a Christian, I had to deal with it. I had to understand it. I had to try to put it into perspective why was he different why weren't we close friends anymore why had his behavior changed you know those why was he so intent about sharing Christ with me and so god's genius is that uh, you know there there's no doubt that you know going on a missions trip or as a missionary or whatever that's fantastic you know we do that obviously especially short term missions uh, but the real mission is just the going out into the world you and I, living where we live, working where we work, uh, wherever we shop, that's the mission. Verse 1 continues, and he came to him and said to him. Now we're going to see what follows is a masterful parable. In the New American Standard Bible, it's formatted to look like a psalm. In other words, it was a prepared, inspired message. We are not sent with our own message or ideas. We're sent with God's message. It's the gospel, the word of God. And we need to be true to its content and its character. We don't want to add to it we don't want to subtract from it and even those of us who sort of in a in a good biblical way pride ourselves on being you know uh, accurate to the bible we still sometimes add our own nuances to the word of god things that we think people should be doing or shouldn't be doing and we just need to be careful that when we're sharing with people we're giving them the undiluted gospel of jesus christ Jesus was God in human flesh. He came to the world. He died for the sins of the world. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. And it requires personal faith in him to be saved. Uh, Those are things that we need to share with people. I must remain convinced, too, that that gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I must continue to believe it is sufficient in and of itself and that it needs no propping up from things that godless men think they have discovered in their own research into the human psyche. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times, if we're honest, in, in that, you know, human part of us, as it were, where we're sharing with somebody... Sometimes we are a little bit embarrassed, not about Jesus, not about the gospel so much, but we realize that what we're saying sounds so fantastic or so simple. And, you know, um, I don't know about you, but I've been accused of this. You know, there are people who they consider themselves intelligent and smart and educated. They think you're some kind of mental idiot if you become religious. You must not have studied at the right universities. You must not know that there's, you know, modern knowledge uh, that, you know, the theory of evolution has been proven true and these kinds of things, you know, and then you're like. And so you kind of sometimes you're embarrassed. You think you're coming across as an idiot, as somebody who's not very learned. uh, When in reality, the gospel, the simple gospel, saves. And if people do want to argue with you beyond that, we do have an apologetic. We have an answer that we can give in all of these areas, and it's a better answer than the world is given. I mentioned evolution. It's easy to show that there's no proof for evolution, and and, and there's never been, and there never will be. And so that's why scientists today say, well, we don't even need any. We don't need any. Evolution just happens all at once. There's no transitional species. There's, there's no monkey that's getting up, 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 and now he's a man and he shaves with a razor. There's nothing like that. We don't need that because all of a sudden there's a quantum leap of evolution. Well, how does that happen? Oh, and these are scientists say maybe aliens helped us. God didn't do it, but Martians, maybe they did. And after all, because Mars needs moms, uh, you know, so... It's crazy. And so who's the crazy person? It's the person that doesn't know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that something is simple and straightforward doesn't mean that it's wrong. Uh, Let's see if we can get out of verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, excuse me, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup. It lay in his bosom, again, the embraceable you, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so two men lived in the city, one rich, one poor, The rich man had tons of uh, flocks and herds. Poor man had this one little ewe lamb that was his household pet. He purchased it. He raised it as his own. He fed it from his table. It drank out of his cup. A lot of you do this with your dogs and cats. I know. So do we. The rich man had a guest drop in for a visit. As the host, he was uh, obligated to provide him with a meal. He decided upon lamb. But he didn't want to sacrifice even one lamb from all those he owned. And so he took the poor man's pet lamb, slaughtered it, and served it to his guest so as not to suffer any losses personally. You know what's most interesting to me about this story? It's very obvious, but it's the most interesting part of the story. It was told to a shepherd. David was a shepherd. We forget that David was a shepherd because now he's the king. At least that's how he had started. And he had been a good shepherd. Early in his career, when he went up against Goliath, he said, Saul, I can take this guy. When lions and bears come to steal the sheep, and I'm all by myself out in the fields watching them, I fight them. I kill them because of that one lamb. I'm not that, I don't know what I would do. Well, I do know what I would do. I'm just trying to be courageous here. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You're tending sheep. There's no corral. All of a sudden, a you know lion comes along. Bird's got to fly. Fish got to swim. You know. I mean, you know they. It's the circle of life. <laughs> What's one little lamb? You know. But no, David said, I, "Hey, you guys, you 99, you stay here, huddle together. I'll be right back. I'm going to kill me a lion." And I mean, he was courageous about that. It's not going too far to suggest that David may have had his own little pet lamb from time to time. As king, he was to have a shepherd's heart for each individual subject he ruled over. That was the whole point of him being raised up as a shepherd so that he could make application of that to the children of Israel. So that he could look at every individual subject of his and say, I'm going to protect you from the lion and from the bear. No matter how poor you are, no matter how weak you are, I am your shepherd king. But instead, he had become the lion. He went in and he stole the sheep and he devoured the sheep. Oh, David, I'll tell you, this is powerful stuff. God told shepherd, a shepherd a sheep story. He met David right where he was at. You know, it's not always possible, but I think it, we can, uh, if we think about it, meet folks where they are at and certainly without compromising God's message. I think we ought to try more to craft our presentation of the gospel without diluting it in a way that they would find most meaningful. One of the ways I've tried to do this, it's not a, you know, an original idea with me, but it's a good idea. Uh, at funerals. Uh, a lot of times, you know, someone is deceased, they probably had a career. Uh, most of the people there knew their career and were touched by it and uh, maybe worked with them, co-workers and all that. And so I'll look at somebody's career or what they were most interested in. And I'll try and make an analogy from the word of God with a parable or a story or something to show people how the word of God impacts, you know. And because and, like with David here, David's going to hear this and, and he's going to have a, a reaction to it because he doesn't understand really that it's about him. And then when Nathan says, you're the man, there's nothing he can do but repent because he understands that he's pronounced judgment on himself. And so it's very powerful. Now, I mentioned in our last study that Bathsheba was most likely an unwilling participant in this adultery. This parable seems to make that even clearer, at least to me. The rich man in the parable took the ewe lamb. David took Bathsheba from the man who loved her and whom she loved. How would David respond to this injustice? Well, verse 5, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. David pronounced a judgment that went beyond what God's law would have required. By the way, it's interesting, sometimes um, folks can act judgmentally, uh, or they can have a they can seem critical or sometimes just legalistic. You know, some people, they come across, you know, you're talking to them and they come across as if everything in their life is totally under control. There's no problem. And when you tell them something, they almost have a condescending attitude like, well, if you were like me, if you got up at 3 a.m. to exercise while listening to the Scriptures... Uh, you know, while evangelizing on the telephone, you know, and stuff. If you did the things that I did and had all everything in order, you probably wouldn't have these problems. Uh, Now, maybe there are people like that. I don't know any. uh, But a lot of times people who are judgmental or critical uh, or legalistic, they do it as a cover for their own sins. They act outwardly uh, kind of in that way to cover what's going on inwardly. Just Just a thought. Uh, so that you won't be beaten down by uh, folks. God wants to encourage you. He wants to lift you up. He wants to build you up. David was a reader of God's Word and he was even one of its writers. But here we see that it came to him through the agency of another person, a messenger he knew. You and I are to think of ourselves as sent out into the world to the people we already know to share The relationship we have with Christ. And that brings us to verses 7 through 14. You're the man, God says, in his message. Knowing you are sent produces a boldness when you speak. It certainly did in Nathan verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. In sales you're told, always be closing. I certainly do not want to equate the gospel with a sales pitch. But I do think we should emphasize that the word of God calls for a personal decision when it is taught. God is speaking directly to each and every individual who encounters his word. We should press for a decision or at least indicate to the person that a decision is being called for. I mean, you know, Nathan shared this is a great parable, but something needs to be done about it. You know, he shared the parable and David had this reaction. And then Nathan, I guess, could have said, wow, it seems like he got it. Okay, great. But no, he, took, he, he went for the clothes. He says, well, David, the whole point of that is that it's you. And, and I think there's a, a, just a reminder to us that when we share with people, at some point they have to realize that you're really talking about them being sinners, not just other people, not just undefined people who might do wrong things. You're telling a person when you share the word of God, hey, listen, there's nothing you can do to approve yourself to God. There's no amount of works. There's no amount of righteousness. All your good works are like filthy rags before the Lord. You need Jesus Christ. You're a sinner. Or if you're talking to a backslidden Christian, uh, you know, to let them know in no uncertain terms that they're playing with fire. Hey, you're saved, but so is by fire. And so let's deal with this. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Some of us who might have been critical of Nathan's initial approach, thinking he was watering down the message, certainly Uh, See his boldness here. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. These are prophecies that God gave Nathan of the things to come. In subsequent chapters, we'll see them transpire exactly as he said they would. You and I have been given prophecies of things to come that we can share with people. On a personal level, we know what happens when people die. If a non-believer dies, they're appointed unto a death once and then comes judgment. There's no second chance. They're in a place of holding, of waiting, of waiting with its own suffering and torment, until what the Bible calls the second resurrection and the second death. They don't sound good because they're not. All the wicked dead of all time are raised from the dead, given resurrection bodies that can endure suffering for eternity. And when their name is looked for in the Lamb's book of life, it's not found there because they didn't respond to the, uh, the conscience that God had given him or to the creation that God had put around them to seek after the Lord so that he could bring them more of his revelation of himself. They didn't respond to the gospel when it was brought to them. And so they're lost for eternity. And so we know this. We also know that those who are believers, when they die, to be absent from the body, they'll be present with the Lord immediately, awaiting their resurrection body, their glorified body. We know that some believers will never die. And that's the category I'd like to be in. Where in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed at the rapture of the church and we can declare these things with a hundred percent accuracy and with God's authority. We also know things that are coming uh, in as far as big, broad prophecies on the earth. We can talk with absolute confidence about the coming of a seven year tribulation upon the earth. We can talk about the millennial kingdom that is going to follow that and then eternity, which is going to follow that. And so we have an awful lot of prophetic things that we can share with people. And knowing this future, both a personal future and a prophetic future, a fantastic evangelistic tools for convincing nonbelievers of their need for salvation. And it also helps us to remind believers to be ready to stay holy, because we're always telling them that the blessed hope of seeing Jesus could happen at any moment. You remember when you were a kid and you were doing something you didn't, you weren't supposed to do. You were always worried that your mom or dad would come in the room and catch you doing it, and so you became a devious scoundrel. But some things, you, you know, sometimes you're just too little and too dumb. Uh, and you just get caught. What are you doing? Nothing. You're caught red-handed, literally, with your hand in the cookie jar. And, and you you know, God says, in a, in a sense, this is what, you know, the imminent rapture. Hey, you don't want to get yourself caught with your hand in the cookie jar. God is watching. God is coming. And it's a good thing. It's not just to put fear into you. It's because you want to be ready and unashamed at His coming. Verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, hadn't he sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the entire nation? Well, yes, of course he had, but that all stemmed from the root of his sin against God. God's message isn't that we need to reform our behavior. It's that we require a fundamental change from within. We need regeneration, not reformation. We need a new heart, not just new habits. Something we can glean from this is that too often we, and by we I mean the church, we hype a specific sin trying to show how evil it is when God is seeking sinners. When God's going for the root, we are always looking at the symptoms. God does nothing to downplay David's sexual sin. But through the sheep story, we learn that it was just... It wasn't just David's sexual passions that were in play here. It was his covetousness that was the root of his sin. David had tons of wives and concubines. He wasn't hurting for a date. It wasn't that you know he had all this sexual energy that was pent up and he needed to find somebody. He had all that. He coveted another man's wife and sinned with her sexually. But the root really was this covetousness. I think we need to be careful about singling out particular sins. Because when people come to church and we're singling them out, their particular behavior, here's what they hear. They hear us say, God hates you. We're all doing fine. We sin. We have sins, even sexual sins, but they're not as bad as your sin. They're certainly not as bad as your sexual sin. This is the one sin God hates in this generation. And so you're lost. And, and that's why we don't have uh, many times people coming into the church who feel like they can hear the word of God because they think that God hates them. And, and they have good reason to believe that. You know, it's interesting if you study church history, even recent church history here in the United States, um, it wasn't too long ago that the one sin that everybody was speaking out against was alcohol. If you drank, man, hellfire and damnation. That was it. And there was temperance movements and all of that. Fast forward, it's what year is it? 2011? Almost every Christian drinks. So what happened to that? Well, it became not such an important issue. But now we have some other sins that we can camp out on. I'm not saying that things aren't important or that they're not sinful. But the best way to handle this is to just go through the Scripture Verse by verse, line by line, when you come to something, you talk about it. If God says it's a sin, guess what? It's a sin. And and you're honest about it. But you don't have to be telling people all the time that God hates them. God doesn't hate them. He loves them. He sent His Son to die for them. That He would deal with the root of their sin. And guess what? When they're regenerated, a lot of things will change in their life. They'll come under the authority of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and sins will fall off of their life. It's a fantastic thing. And so let's be careful that we're always looking to preach the gospel to get to the root of a person's sin. A lot of times people will ask me, My this person, you know, has this particular sin. What should I tell them? I, I, I hope you understand me. I tell them to ignore that particular sin and try and convince them that they're sinners in need of salvation, and that it's not there's not just one sin that's going to keep you out of heaven. It's the fact that you you need to be born again, that you need Christ as your Savior. Tell them about your one sin back when you were a sinner, or your hundred sins, and what God did to change you. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. Just like that. In response to David's confession, his agreeing with God, Nathan says, well, the Lord's put away your sin. How can he do that? Well, it's interesting. David was told a parable about the slaughter of an innocent lamb. God can put away your sins because of the slaughter of his innocent lamb, Jesus Christ on the cross. When he saw Jesus, John the Baptist declared not once but twice, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the one whom all the sacrificial lambs prefigured. His mission was to come as God and man to deal with the issue of sin by dying as our substitute and sacrifice. Only through faith in Jesus Christ, in his death on your behalf, can you receive the forgiveness of sins and be told... The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die, but you will have everlasting life. But because of what Jesus did, because he came as the God-man and died and rose from the dead, we can absolutely declare to people with 100% authority that the moment they trust Christ, their sins have been forgiven, they're as far away as the sunrise from the sunset, they're gone. In terms of God holding them against them, they've been born again. They have eternal life. Now, uh, verse 14, however, because by this deed you have given great occasions to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is also born to you shall die. In addition to the consequences previously listed, the child born to David by Bathsheba would die. We'll see this and we'll talk about it uh, next week, Lord willing. For now, we're meant to understand that those sins are forgiven, not counted against us, they're remembered no more, It doesn't mean they don't carry consequences. And so David's story is given to us as a warning. If even he, the man after God's own heart, the psalmist, God's shepherd king, could sin in such a manner, then so might I. To put it in terms of the text, God's word can come to me on a daily basis and say, You are the man. It can convict me of my sin, reveal attitudes as well as actions, the root as, the well as, the, as, as well as the fruit of sin. And so if I'm in God's Word and I'm opening my heart up before God, I don't have to wait for Nathan the prophet to come because I have God's prophetic Word and God can just speak to me and say, Gene, you're the man. This is an area that is not pleasing to me. To put it another way, and, and I like this too, God's word cleanses me every day as if it were pure water rushing over me. It can just as powerfully declare to me and to each of us who are Christians, you're the man, you're the woman with regard to the blessings and the rewards and the privileges and the power that are spoken of. And so I can read things in God's Word and and hear the Spirit applying them, saying, Gene, this is you. I'm talking about you. You're the person I'm gone to build a house for. You're the one whose rewards I am storing up in heaven. You're the person whose life has a plan and good works for you to discover. Uh, And and so, you know, it's it's kind of like a double-barreled approach. You know, on the one hand, I want to get rid of this kind of stuff. I want to know what the root of sin is and why I keep doing these crazy things. Like Paul the Apostle who said, you know, I, I want to do certain things I don't do them. Other things I, want to, you know, I don't want to do and I do. And, you know, help me. I want that. I want the Lord to speak to me that way and say, well, you are the man. But I also can receive these other promises and privileges as well. You are the man. You are the woman that God loved with an everlasting love and drew to himself. Remain in that first love towards him. Or if you've left it, just return and then go. And as you're going, sent out by him, share his message with others. Be the prophet friend that other people need. If you're not a believer here this morning, then you're to behold the Lamb of God who took away your sins. Let's pray together.